everybody. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Peter Hodges. I'm one of the elders here at Bayless Baptist Church. And um, here at Bayless, we preach through books of the Bible. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Here at Bayless, we preach through books of the Bible, and for the last few months, we've been going through Exodus. So to give you a bit of a background, hey guys, my clicker's not working for whatever reason. Cue it forward. Again. Keep going until you can see my stuff. Oh, all right. I'll get started. Uh, <coughs> anyway, I'll give you a bit of background. I don't actually need slides uh, for the moment, so we'll find out if I get them. Give you a bit of background. The sons of Israel were originally moved into Egypt due to a famine that drove them at, that drove them there for bread. Uh, they originally lived there in peace. After many years, they were set to uh, slave labor. And it says that they cried out to God. And it comes to God by way of Moses to bring his people out of slavery. Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. He says about the Israelite people, no, these are my servants. They answer to me. So in essence, God says of the Nile River that gives Pharaoh drink, the, the weather that gives him crops, the sun in the sky which gives him light, God says of all those things, these are my servants, they answer to me. And so the God who orders the cosmos in Genesis is the God who brings that cosmos crashing down on Pharaoh nine different times in nine different ways. And that's our background. But this is the calm before the storm. The first nine plagues come in fairly rapid succession, but for the tenth and final plague, there's, uh, there's something different. For this one, we have days, if not weeks, of warning. The first nine are, are impressive as a collection, but this one sort of stands alone in its own category. The first nine plagues were all temporary, so were Pharaoh's promises about letting them go. The last one will be permanent, and uh, so will Pharaoh's defeat. With this last plague, something changes. Something changes forever. See, what we're about to read is a window into three things. It's about a death of the world that now is, the hope of the world to come, and a meal in the middle. So keep your Bibles open, as we're going to be hitting several sections of a, of a couple different chapters. We're going to be in 12 and 13. And as we begin, I want you to read with me in Exodus 12, just the, verse, the last two verses that Stephanie read, or last three, 12, 13, and 30. <coughs> For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, 
And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. These are heavy words. These are words of unimaginable, heavy loss. And they are attributed directly to the action of the God that we worship. This is a sober message. It's a message, first, that there is a God who owns the firstborn, and there is a God who judges gods. So, to say that there is a God who owns the firstborn, here's what I mean by that. In uh, chapter 13, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. So, as a secondborn child, I don't really like this, but it's true. Back then, everything was wound up in your firstborn. In this society, the firstborn inherited the father's estate. When, so when he died, the family line, the family name, the family's legacy, the glory and honor of that family was all wrapped up in that firstborn. And God says, that is mine. That, that glory, that honor, that, that which is most precious to you, that everything, I claim that. All of your hopes and dreams, all that is most precious to you is mine to do with as I please. But that's not all. He said to Israel, your firstborn is mine. He says to Pharaoh, my firstborn is Israel. Exodus 4.22 says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. All I have goes to them. To the degree that you, that you could say this, God is essentially saying, all of my intentions, my name, my legacy, everything of mine is bound up with them. It's bound up with this slave nation. Release what is most precious to me or I will kill what is most precious to you. And this goes into the second idea, that God is the God who judges gods. When you think of the gods in the Bible, think of this. Every society has its foundations and its pillars that it builds things on, that it sets its hearts on, that it worships. Egypt relied on the, um, the fertile ground of the Nile. It had very routine flood cycles that allowed them to have very prosperous crops. So they would pray to this god named uh, Hapi or Hapi to, uh, about these fertile grounds. Or they would pray to Ra, the sun god, for light and truth and order. And so you get the idea. The focus is not actually the, the person that they get, is the god. The focus is on the product. Things haven't actually changed all that much. The ancient gods of love, success, food, drink, we still do more or less the same thing today. You know, if someone's, if someone's worshiping Mars, what they're worshiping is conquest, victory. If someone's worshiping Athena, they're worshiping this idea of human wisdom. So 
what makes God the God who judges gods is he says, all those come from him. I rule and reign over all of these. Pharaoh, you rule and reign as God, as the ruler of the center of Egypt, as the one that the people set their heart on. We're okay. The irony is uh, my current slide is a blank slide. <laughs> but there'll be more. You rule and reign in Egypt as, as a God that people set their heart on. But I am the one who raised you up. Whether you acknowledge it or not, I am your God and I am your judge. Now, a person might kind of bristle at this idea of, you know, doesn't killing all of these firstborn sons seem very petty and vengeful? You know, wouldn't it, it's more natural to think of the Bible as talking about forgiveness, you know, of saying, you know, wouldn't it be doing more good to teach forgiveness instead of vengeance? However, the Bible doesn't just call us to be good. It also tends to redefine what goodness is. Because God never says vengeance is bad. God says vengeance is mine. And in the majority of times and places in the world, that is the actual good that is actually needed. I'm going to read a quote from a man named Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian, and he's speaking about the Yaroslav Wars that uh, ravaged his home country with ethnic cleansing a couple decades ago. <coughs> My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the people in the West, but imagine for a moment speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them as you speak is this, we should not retaliate. Why not? What will ever keep them from retaliating? I say this, that the only means of prohibiting vengeance by us is to insist that vengeance is only legitimate when it comes from God. He's saying the victims of oppression do not need nice moral principles. What they need is a vengeful God who sees their value and does something about it. And the, the God we see in this chapter, in this book, in this Bible, is the God who says your longing for justice, your longing for vengeance is a longing that is and shall be fulfilled in me. If there is to be any hope in a world like ours, if there is to be anything other than the pit, if there is to be anything other than hell on earth, heaven must come down, and heaven must come down with the sword. And not just on Pharaoh. When I was younger, I, I used to get frustrated and feel like the Egyptians were getting punished for decisions that they weren't making. You know, I would say, Pharaoh's the stubborn one. Pharaoh's the one who said no. Why are you plaguing all of these Egyptians? Why punish the whole nation when it was just him? But it wasn't just him. We're, we're easy to, to pass the buck, we're having an easy time passing the buck up the chain, but Pharaoh didn't go with his own two hands and throw all the Hebrew children in the Nile. Pharaoh by himself did not bind every burden. He did not whip every slave. 
It was the magicians who worked their magic arts to dismiss the power of God. It was Egyptian slave masters who beat the Hebrews. It was the Egyptians who weren't even involved in any of that, who did none of that, and also did nothing in any way to help or to cry out for the people that were being abused and oppressed. It was even some of the Hebrews themselves who, who gave up hope and told Moses, you know, it's worse for us now when, since you've come. You know, don't trouble us any further. Leave us to this. Everyone in the land of Egypt had blood on their hands, and everyone in the land of Egypt had a God to answer to. Because every person at every stage could be tempted to say, it's, it's not my decision. You know, I was, I was just following orders. I was trying to mind my own business, take care of my own family in a difficult world. I, I didn't want any trouble. I don't have any power here. That's just the way things are. And those are the words that paint the Nile red with the blood of children. Every person claims there's nothing they can do, but the truth of the matter is there's nothing you can do without a cost. If I ever defy Pharaoh, it could cost my position. It could cost my comfort. It could cost my life. I'm not willing to lose my life. I'd rather lose theirs. I'd rather have enough wealth that I won't have to know their poverty. I'd rather have enough comfort that I won't have to know their suffering. So when God says, I will execute judgment on the gods of Egypt, what is he judging? What ultimately is a god? God is this thing, a god is the thing that you never say no to. The Egyptians are about to learn that you cannot give your ultimate allegiance to different places. In their case, they cannot give their ultimate allegiance to a god and to a nation. And like them, if, if we cannot look at our nation, if we cannot look at our political party or our favorite candidate or our company or our parents or our spouse or our children or ourselves, if we can't look at any of them and say, if there's any of them that we can't look at and say, you are wrong, God is right, I cannot follow you because I must follow him, then you're worshiping a different God. And the God of this Bible is, is the God who judges gods, either in this life, as the Egyptians experience, or in the life to come. Which brings us to our second point. We talked about <coughs> the death of the world that now is. This also talks about the hope of the world that is to come. I'll show you what I mean by that. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. In this man, oh, sorry. Don't blow past this. What we're reading here is a new beginning. He's saying, Moses, all these plagues up until now have changed your life for a moment. This last one is going to change the way things are, not for a moment, but forever which is fascinating, especially in Egypt. You may not know, scholars tell us that Egyptians actually had very little sense of history. They, they had no real sense of past or future. Historical incidents were just sort of mild disturbances in, in the way of things, but history didn't move. It wasn't going anywhere. All that is was all there ever would be, and it all centered on Pharaoh. That's what I mean when I say Pharaoh was their god. So when God tells Moses, this shall be the beginning of months, he's saying something in soft whispers to people 
whose world has only ever known the opposite. He's saying, behold, I do something new. If you don't believe me, read verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste, this is the Lord's Passover. My kids actually know this. If I say, get dressed, get your shoes on, first thing's out of their mouth. Where are we going? And that's what's happening here. He's saying, get dressed, get your shoes on, get your staff, eat quickly. Where you are is not where you're staying. Your world is about to change. And in fact, 40 years later, in, uh, in Joshua chapter 5, one of the first things the Israelites did in the promised land was eat this same meal. The meal that, that promised the new world was the meal they ate and that promise was fulfilled. The meal that said, you're going somewhere new is the meal that they ate when that new day did arrive. But not to get ahead of ourselves, because while that old world was falling down, we haven't gotten quite to that world that shall be. Let's look at the meal in the middle. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the, mo the month. They took it on the tenth day. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So that's a lot of bizarre specifics. When I first encountered this, I, I was like, what's with all the rules? Like when I was younger. Every rule actually has a reason. To distill this down, this meal in the middle is the feast, which makes sense, and the flag, which may not make sense, of the people of God. What do I mean when I call it a flag? You might think it's strange to talk about a meal as being a flag, but if you're sailing in the ocean and you see a ship with the stars and stripes on it, you know who that ship belongs to. And that matters in peacetime. And it matters even more when you're at war. Your flag says whose side you're on. It says who has your loyalty. And it says it publicly. When you eat this meal, you do something with the lamb. You put it on your doorposts and on your lintel. If you don't know what the lintel is, the doorposts are the vertical pieces of wood. The lintel is that horizontal piece of wood. And everybody can see if that blood is on your doorpost. Everyone in this war between the king of Egypt and the God of Israel, everyone can see whose side you're on. In fact, it goes further than that. Remember, God tells Moses, you take a lamb on the 10th day and you keep it until the 14th day. So for several days, everyone in the community, everyone in the nation of Egypt that is at war with Yahweh knows whose team you picked. In an earlier passage, we read fascinating detail about one of the earlier plagues, which is along these lines. 
Behold, this is plague number seven. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field is not, and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the Lord, or feared the word of the Lord, among the servants of Pharaoh, hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Once again, everyone can tell what you do with your slaves. Everyone can tell who you're trusting. So while some of the plagues were centered on the area where the Hebrews lived, this seventh plague said anyone can be saved from this one, but there's a cost. Everyone will see what you did the night before. Kenneth Bailey writes um, of his work at a seminary in Eastern Europe. He was talking to the interviewing committee about how they interviewed young men and who applied to the school wanting to be pastors. They said their most important question was, when were you baptized? And Kenneth Bailey was like, why does that matter? And they said, uh, if they were baptized during the period of Soviet rule, they risked their lives and compromised their futures by being baptized. But if they were baptized after liberation from the Soviets, we have many further questions to ask them about why they want to become pastors. Loyalties are clearest when the cost is highest. And so on this 10th night in Egypt, every person, Hebrew in Egypt, was asked a question. Whose side are you on? Whose flag are you flying? The question was not, who are your parents? The question was not, do you, do you feel full of faith? The question was not, do you consider yourself a Hebrew? Do you consider yourself an Egyptian? Or, you know, in our terms, do you consider yourself a, a Christian? The question was, is your blood on the doorpost? Do you say before everyone, when it costs you something, I am obeying his word, I have joined his people, I am his, and I will go against anything that he goes against. Egyptians are given a choice between two gods, and they have to pick one. The Hebrews are given a choice between two powerful masters. They have to pick one. Actually, uh, we get several descriptions of the Passover, but they're not all quite the same. In your Bibles, if you see in uh, chapter 12, verses 43 to 49, we get a description of the annual feast, and there's something specific about the annual feast. I'm just going to read it. It's not going to be up there. This is the statue of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. We don't have time to get into various forms of slavery. Short version, slavery being talked about here, different from Egyptian slavery. Ask me later if you're interested. But here's the key... Here's the, what they mean by slave. There's three categories. Stranger has a casual relationship. So that's somebody who's just kind of traveling through, have no problem with the God of Israel, but they're, they don't claim to worship him. Hired worker has a bit more of a relationship. He's saying, I will do that job for that price on that day. And the employer says, sure. 
slave is someone who has a covenant relationship. Slave is someone who says, I cannot take care of myself. I need you. Without you, I will starve. Take me into your household. Provide, protect, and I will serve you, and I will give myself to you. I am yours, no matter the cost. And circumcision is sort of your, your evidence of that. When you have the power to circumcise someone, you have them in your power. And circumcision is mentioned as a requirement for the annual feast, but not for the first feast. First feast says nothing. The verse Stephanie read says nothing about being circumcised. It only says how to prepare the lamb. Can I skip ahead into Evan's material for the next week? There's this mixed multitude that comes out. Because for that first Passover, I think, just like the seventh plague, there is this opportunity to say, I'm yours. I choose your team. Even though, despite what my parents did, despite who, what I've, how I've always been brought up, I am yours. And this is the flag that they fly because this is the God that they serve. And this is the feast that he calls us to. This feast has three elements. Everyone matters. The bitter herb, the unleavened bread, and the lamb without blemish. Bitter herb's probably the easiest to explain. Uh, in Exodus 1, we read, uh, so they ruthlessly made the people, yep. so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. Bitter herb had like, eh, two purposes. One, Remember, this is the annual feast they're going to have every year. So the bitter feast is a, is a reminder of where they were. Unlike those who would later say, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that, that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. The bitter herb is a reminder of what it actually tastes like to be a slave. I think it's also worth noting that, um, ask the question, who made their lives bitter? Pharaoh, Egypt. But who's commanding them to eat the bitter herb? God is the one commanding them to eat the bitter herb. And so God's saying, I think, nothing happened that was not part of my plan. I have brought this bitter herb to you to eat. I did not just allow this, I meant this. For what Pharaoh meant for evil, I meant for good. Pharaoh gave you bitterness and unending bondage. I gave you a bitterness which looks forward to a blessing. So take, eat, and know this is the new beginning. Remember the old world that I brought you into and that I am bringing you out of for my good purposes. Don't look back on it with nostalgia. Taste the bitter past. Thirst for the future that I have for you. So the unleavened bread's a little less clear. Uh, most of any time you eat bread, you need something to put in there like yeast or leaven. Without leaven, it's basically crackers. And the question is, what does that leaven mean? I've heard it said that leaven is a symbol for sin, um, and that you need to get this symbol out of your house. However, leaven doesn't necessarily mean sin. Um, Matthew, in Matthew 13, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Okay, Jesus is not saying the kingdom of heaven is like sin. He's, uh, he's just talking about the small and powerful impact this kingdom has. The Bible says similar things about malice 
evil, the Pharisees, a little thing that gets in and changes everything. But here, it could mean a couple of things. It could be referring to haste, um, because they're, they ate, they're supposed to eat it in haste. My only question there is, then why do they do this for seven days in chapter 13? And why do they go through all this trouble to get it out of their house? That, that doesn't seem hasty to me. But as I was studying this, I learned there's another name for unleavened bread. Poor man's bread. Much like the bitter herbs in verse 8, this is a symbol of poverty. Though, like I said, there's a, there's a commandment to go and clean all the leaven out of your house. So this is not just about being poor. It's about making yourself poor. There's an element in this feast where, like Jesus, when he speaks of the kingdom of heaven, when he speaks of the poor, the children, the least of these, there's this idea that the weak and the poor are blessed because the God of Israel, the true God of who is there, is the God of widows and orphans. Those who identify themselves with the poor and the marginalized draw close to the almighty God who is the God of a slave nation. And then, of course, we have this third item. The lamb without blemish. A whole lamb, not raw, not boiled, not torn apart. Verse 46 says, Not a bone shall be broken, if that sounds familiar to anyone, of this Passover lamb. And if you want to know why that's important, I got curious. And so I wanted to see, what does it look like to roast a lamb? So this is what I learned. This will look a little gruesome. This is a whole animal hung up. You really can't roast a whole animal without at some point hanging them up. And if you want to know why that's interesting to me, look at this next picture. Does this look eerily familiar to anybody as if you've seen this picture before? Now, I'm not certain maybe this picture was staged, so I found this last one, which I don't know how clear it's going to be. This picture was not staged. I know that because these people do not worship Jesus. It's hard to see under the black, but these are Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem who do not believe in the Messiah. They're bringing their lamb onto their roasting thing. And if you can see here, they brought him on a cross with no intention whatsoever to tell this story. This is the story that they're telling every year when they celebrate Passover. You see, when Moses said this shall be the beginning of days, when Moses said God is doing a new thing, when Moses said the world is changing, he was whispering a message that no one else in the ancient world or even in the modern world has ever claimed. God is moving in history. We're moving from an old world to a new world. We are moving from a beginning through a middle to an end. Our God is telling a story, and the next chapter will build on the last. It's worth noting as history moves forward, um, significance is added to the wine. Uh, over the centuries, there, there came to be these four distinct cups tied to the four I will statements in Exodus 6. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. The Israelites looked back at God, 
who had done this and looked forward at the God who would ultimately do this. So far as I'm aware, no one else even claims he was writing the story uh, through the centuries, but that is what Scripture claims, and that is what Scripture does. Passover starts in Exodus, continues through the wilderness wanderings, takes on new significance in the book of Joshua, and transforms again a thousand years later. And this story is so tangible, so historical, that even Bart Ehrman, an agnostic historian who has little respect for the Bible, writes about Paul's discussion of the Passover, and he says this. He is clearly referring to a historical event. He indicates that this scene happened at night. This is not some vague mythological reference, but a concrete historical one. Paul knows that Jesus had a Last Supper. He doesn't say, this unbelieving historian does not say Paul believes. He does not say Paul thinks that Paul was told. He says Paul knows. Paul knows that Jesus had a Last Supper with his disciples in which he predicted his approaching death the very night he was handed over to the authorities. To a limited degree, it is accepted even by unbelieving historians that this is true. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because this is our meal in the middle. This is our meal in the middle. And it says that we're going somewhere. The true firstborn. Oh, excuse me. But the Passover meal celebrated for centuries was now transformed. We weren't being saved from Pharaoh, but from Adam. Not from slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin. And so the reason that that's important is that's why there is no bitter herb. Because we have never tasted. Only he has tasted what he's saving us from. We wouldn't taste the bitterness because he would drink the bitter cup for us. The true horizontal being, the true vertical being, where the blood saved us from wrath. The true firstborn of all creation, Jesus Christ, took on flesh and became the true Israel. In Colossians 1, Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation. In Colossians 2, God is saying, God disarmed the rulers and authorities. In other words, he judged the gods of this world and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. The old world has been judged and is on its way out. The new world is This is our meal in the middle. We eat the poor man's bread that is his body made poor for us, emptied of leaven, emptied of heaven, broken for us. We drink the wine that is his blood poured out because he has brought us out. He has delivered us. He has redeemed us. He has taken us to be his people. He has and he ultimately shall. And this is why if you have been deeply broken, if you have been dehumanized, The God we see in this chapter, in this book, in this Bible, is a God who says, you're longing for justice, you're longing for vengeance. That longing is and shall be fulfilled in me. Because if there is to be any hope, if there is to be anything other than the pit, 
If there is to be anything other than hell on earth, then heaven must come down, and heaven must come down with the sword. Vengeance must be poured out, but so that the world could be more than obliterated, so that it could be made new, God delivered up his firstborn son. The God who owns the firstborn gave his firstborn to us. And the vengeance of God came down on him. The God of vengeance has not devalued the victims of suffering. He has joined them in their suffering to bring them out of their suffering. He has taken my place bearing the vengeance I deserve. He shared the life of the oppressed and bore the vengeance of the oppressor because the blood of the firstborn has borne the death of infinite cost. And that is why he calls the oppressor and the oppressed to this table. By this same blood, the Egyptian, the Hebrew, the Gentile, the Jew, the rich, the poor, those whose brothers have been murdered and whose sisters have been defiled are invited along with those who have done the murder, who have done the defiling, because because for the cross of Christ, any villain, any oppressor, any sinner, any one of us can come to a holy God and look at the evil that we've done and the evil that we've committed with our blind eye this e- and say the price has been paid. It has not been ignored. It has not been erased. It has been satisfied. Because the evil was committed against someone who matters. It could only be dealt with by something as important as the firstborn son. How do we respond to such a God? Not with a casual relationship, not with a contract relationship, not with boundaries that say, I'll do this for you if you do that for me, but you don't get here and here. We are not casual. We have no contract. We have a covenant. He is mine. I am his. His blood is on my doorpost. So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This meal that says we're going somewhere new is the meal we will eat when that new day comes. Let us pray.